Yeah, I think the uh, British ambassador said that the court is in danger of spending more money on these labor disputes than actually on investigations. He's um, not wrong. <laughs> Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hello, it's Janet. And it's Stephanie. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts, your look, your different view on international justice. And what are we going to do today? Uh, we're going to talk to the Canadian ambassador to the Netherlands, Sabine Noka. Good afternoon. Hi, Sabine. And uh, what are we going to... Hey, she's right in the room, so this is a bit awkward, but what are we going to talk to her about? <laughs> well, she's on a committee to select the new ICC prosecutors. I, for one, am dying to know what is going on there, but she's on a lot of other interesting committees where she has to talk about chemical weapons, uh, war crimes, ICC funding. Um, so all these things are we're going to try and coax some interesting answers out of. Okay, so we'll say hello formally now, Sabine. Hello. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. Lovely to see you. Um, you've been in The Hague four years, is that right? I or have. longer? No, almost exactly four years and I'm about to leave. I have three weeks left in my mandate. What was the um, highlight uh, in relation to the international institutions? For you, anything that you can pull out? Yeah, I, th I think there have been quite a few actually. I think probably the biggest one was the establishment last summer at the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, of um, a mechanism to account for chemical weapons use in Syria. Until then, the OPCW was able to only do fact-finding, i.e. determine that chemical weapons had been used, but not who might have been responsible for their use. And now we have that mechanism in place. I remember following you on Twitter at that point, and it felt like it was quite a battle behind the scenes to, to get this through. What was it like? Well, yes, it was a battle. It continues to be a battle. Um, and it is being continued actually these days in the discussions surrounding the budget of the OPCW because there are some states that do not wish to pay for the mechanism whose establishment they opposed last year. So uh, what was it like? It was pretty dramatic. Uh, our uh, colleagues, uh, particularly the Russian Federation, uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the uh, establishment idea, um, we're very intent on ensuring that um, this doesn't happen, that the special conference of states parties that we had called not succeed. And there are, of course, procedural requirements for these conferences, for special conferences to be established in terms of how many states have agreed to set up the conference, how many have showed up, how many have presented presented valid credentials. In order you have to, to have a quorum, a kind of. Yeah. Exactly. That's the credentials question. So and that's there was the a kind of, of thing that... that you and your colleagues have to be really on top of it's it's how to make those rules work for you yes absolutely it's uh it's essentially cutting edge diplomacy and it comes down to uh, us having to ensure that our headquarters ottawa instruct missions around the world to make presentations to their capitals that they're responsible for uh to so, to ensure that the countries show up that they present their credentials and that they vote and of course, then that they vote the right way, but um, or what we consider to be the right way. Um, 
the credentials presentation is, is a bit wrong. tricky because there are some states that don't have a lot of capacity to do these things. Then, and they're it's not actually here in the Hague, are they? Exactly. Well, some of them are located in Brussels. So I made a couple of trips to Brussels to, to brief delegations there with my team and uh, with, uh, with other colleagues from the United Kingdom. But, uh, but also, uh, in some instances, we really had to point to them how to present their credentials and, and then get after them to ensure that they actually did it. Um, the voting then was secondary. Obviously, as I said, I, I, we were all hoping that they would vote in favor of the mechanism. But it was more important that they participate in the debate, that they're present there, that they have their voices registered uh, on this particular issue. Would you compare that to anything you've had to be involved with at the ICC? I mean, it, what it reminds me of, I'm sure it does for you too, Stephanie, is the Assembly of States Parties, the annual ruling meeting where you have all of the states represented. And I'm, I'm sure behind the scenes, there are all kinds of uh, discussions and deals going on. Yeah, I mean, you, you get that at every, at every diplomatic conference. Uh, Assembly of States Parties, uh, they tend to, for the ICC and for the OPCW and other treaty bodies, they, uh, they tend to be the forum where changes are made, where interpretations are registered, which then, of course, you know, if an assembly pronounces on a particular treaty interpretation, that then becomes part of the interpretative rules. So, so they are legislative bodies, essentially, and then, of course, also political bodies, but they're also fora where civil society can make its voice heard, uh, trying to push the implementation of the treaty in a particular direction or trying to uh, set new norms, trying to establish perhaps uh, um, amendments to the treaty to broaden its application, or some, uh, sometimes simply making the voices of victims heard in the, uh, at the ASP for the International Criminal Court. We see that a fair bit. We have a victims um, fora. Um, it's also a place where um, some states come and show the advances that they've made in implementing the Rome Statute. For example, I had a fascinating discussion um, that, that we co-sponsored uh, with the Gambia. As you know, the Gambia has changed its, uh, its government, and the new government is intent on creating accountability for crimes committed by the previous one. Yeah. Including uh, the Truth Commission that they have going. Exactly, exactly. So, so we were talking about what the international community can do to assist the Gambia so it doesn't have to go to the ICC. Because, uh, of course, complementarity of application is one of the uh, guiding principles of the Rome Statute. And ideally, uh, the, Rome's, the ICC would be out of business if states had the capacity and the political will to do their own um, accountability processes. And the Gambia is heading in that direction. And so we want to support them in that. That's the famous quote of Moreno Campo, that if they did a really good job, the ICC wouldn't be necessary at all because everybody would do it uh, by themselves. I always regard that as a bit of a, um, um, you know, bit of lip service being paid to that. But you would suggest, Sabine, that, that states really do want to see it that way? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, you will recall a couple of years ago, there was a great debate about the ICC quote, only, unquote, taking African cases, and therefore it's an instrument of the West against Africa and, you know, um, holdover from colonial times and all that. 
Now, the fact, of course, is that the ICC, uh, yes, it does have a majority of African cases, but all but two of those were referred by the states themselves. And they were referred because these states lacked the capacity to have such uh, complex and politically sensitive trials on their own territory. So so that's, of course, ideally, um, we develop criminal justice systems in those countries so that they have that capability and that they develop the political will, which of course is all an incidence of democracy. So yes, it's very much a goal, I think, and and you see it in um, in, um, the SDG number 16, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals number 16 and accountability and justice. Justice and institutions to support justice. Absolutely, it's part of that. So the ICC really is a court of last resort, not a court of convenience. And I think that's a really important principle. You mentioned one of the... um big critiques, the big sort of wave of criticism of the ICC over the last few years. But more recently, let's say one of the criticisms of the ICC has been over money and Canada has been central to the the business of, of budget, setting the ICC's budget, calling, as far as I understand, for a lot of restraint in, uh, in increases. Why? Do, aren't you really hamstringing the organisation? No, I, I don't think we are. I mean, uh, we, we wear two hats here. We, we wear the, uh, the overarching foreign policy hat and ensuring that accountability becomes a guiding principle of the rules-based international order. At the same time, we as Canada are also responsible for our own taxpayers. And, uh, and yes, we do get the question. You have a court here that... Uh, uses, uh, I, I can't remember what the actual figure is, I think it's $150 million a year, uh, and they have how many convictions to show for that. So my, my taxpayers ask those hard questions. There are answers for that. I mean, these com- these investigations are complex and complicated, especially when states don't cooperate with investigations. But at the same time, there are efficiencies. And there sometimes seems to be a bit of an understanding or an assumption that um, an international criminal case must be expensive. And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we believe that there are efficiencies that can be gained. Um, we regularly make uh, recommendations to that effect in the context of budget negotiations. Um, we do try to hold the court to it. Um, we have the zero nominal growth principle. In other words, try and function within the envelope that you've given. But we look at it very reasonably as well. So if the court can justify additional expenditures, then you know, we are open to that within reason. But we don't want to just assume that everything can be resolved by throwing money at it, when really a a more efficient operation uh, could do the job as well, if not better. And and then very practical, because I'm kind of, where do you see those efficiencies? Well, um, you may be aware that there are discussions currently underway, guided by the president of the Assembly of States parties on, uh, on potential reforms to the court, uh, and efficiency is, is a big one in there. Uh, there are a number of areas, um, for example, preliminary investigations or pre- preliminary examinations. Um, I have lost track of the number. I think there are 14 currently underway, and some, uh, Colombia, has been ongoing for 14 years. Um, Isn't that considered a success by the ICC, though, in the sense that uh, 
as you were saying, Colombia is one of those countries that now has its own institutions, as some people at the ICC would argue, because they've put the pressure on via the preliminary examination system. Fair enough. But then why is the preliminary examination still going on if their process is happening in Colombia? Is this something that somebody should be devoting time to that could be otherwise spent in another examination? For example, the one on Venezuela that's been uh, ongoing for about a year now. So it's a question of directing priorities uh, as opposed to taking necessarily a scattergun approach. Uh, so that's that's one. Um, a, another one is uh, do you, how often do you need to bring people to the court when you can have video conferences, for example. I mean, that's a very mundane, practical one. Uh, principles of case management. Um, so, so the cases aren't very efficiently run sometimes. You have long periods where nothing happens. Um, at the same time, and so you have some sections of the office of the prosecutor who are overworked, uh, and then you have others that are sitting practically idle. So we think that redistribution of workloads in accordance with priorities could be uh, could be usefully done. So there there are many different areas I think where efficiencies could be gained. Um, and, and of course, when states mention that, one of the first things we hear in response is, yes, but prosecutorial independence. Exactly. Yes, but traditional you know, independence. Micromanager? No, I don't think we're, we're trying to micromanage. Um, one of the things that we, as, as Canada, have always suggested is that there be flexibility in, in, in budget lines so that monies can be moved around because some sections of the court lapse money and then others are, are running dry. Um, no, it's not micromanagement. When you look at a criminal justice system in a domestic jurisdiction, for example, they are under constraints with regard to timing. Um, if you have an individual before the court, you can't wait for six years to conclude the case. You have to do it in an expeditious manner. And that's that's really what uh, I think what we're trying to achieve with calling the, uh, on the court to uh, to bring more efficiencies to the process. The money is an element of that, but it's not the primary element. Um, you mentioned um, judges. Um, doesn't it all start there? I mean, we have a lot of criticism of uh, one of the processes that the current crop of judges is going through, where they're asking for some kind of extra money to make them more equitable, their salaries, their pensions, etc., with the International Court of Justice. Where does Canada stand on that? Well, uh, I mean, we obviously we believe in fair wages for everyone. Um, we also believe that the judges are quite nicely remunerated at this point. Um, parity with the ICJ isn't necessarily uh, the goal. I, I think when they started out, they were actually paid better than ICJ judges. Um, so tying a treaty body to a United Nations body where the assessed contribution system is uh, similar, yes, but uh, in the UN system, you have a lot more states paying into it. Uh, so prima facie, that is not necessarily the way to go. Uh, the process is under revision. Um, we would certainly agree that having a look at inflation rates on all of these things, as we would do with normal salaries, is appropriate and equitable. Whether or not there should be a retroactive pay adjustment, um, I'd like to see a proposal. Um, I certainly, or we, uh, my, my government certainly doesn't think that it's a good idea to sue the court over it. These are issues that are much, be much better discussed uh, within the context of the Assembly of States 
states parties and there is a working group that is looking at uh, at, the, at that issue but um the court suing the court um well that's that's a question i suppose that uh, i mean i shouldn't comment on ongoing litigation but uh it's not the the best outcome i should think yeah, I think the uh, British ambassador said that the court is in danger of spending more money on these labor disputes than actually on investigations. He's um, not wrong. <laughs> and then we come to the new prosecutor. Oh, it's great to see your name on the list of on the search search committee. And you've also got an advisory committee who are more of the academics. I mean, everybody on the search committee, as far as I can see, is kind of diplomatic. And then on the advisory committee are the kind of the lawyer types. Is that the division? How does it work? Well, it's 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 a bit of both. Um, the uh, the committee is composed of um, representatives of each of the five regional groups, and, uh, and what are you? You're WIOG, are you? I'm I'm WIOG, yes, which I'm is the, Western European and, and other, other governments. Yes, other governments, uh, yeah. Canada is part of the OGS, uh, part of the other governments, together with uh, Australia, New Zealand, US, and 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 a few others. Um, it's like the Eurovision Song Contest lineup. Yeah, we're, oh, we're not we're not a part of that, thank goodness. A lot of extras. Um, but uh, but yes, I'm I'm the WIOG rep on uh, on the committee, and I'm also the chairperson. I've been uh, appointed or elected, or selected by my fellow pan- uh, committee members. Um, first of all, it's a huge privilege to to be in that position. I act in my personal capacity. Uh, no, I do not represent Canada in this. So you'll take um, that on with you wherever you go next. That's correct. That's correct. Um, so I'll be I'll be doing that until the process is done, and um, we are. I think we are all lawyers on the committee. I know my Polish uh, counterpart. Yes, he's an ambassador, but he's also a professor of international law. Um, I believe our Cypriot colleague in New York and our Gambian colleague in New York are both lawyers as well. And the fifth member is the Argentinian legal advisor uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So I, I think we are all five of us lawyers. Uh, the panel of experts is uh, is composed, um, you said academics. I, I think two of them are, but they all have connections to actual criminal um, justice systems as well. And the experts um, were picked based on actual expertise with criminal justice systems. So they're the practitioners. Um, we are the diplomats. So we bring different perspectives, um, similar expertise perhaps to some level, but but certainly different perspectives. And, and the reason for that uh, particular composition, uh, which was approved by the uh, Assembly of States Parties, the, the two different groups, is that um, us more political, quote unquote, people would uh, take the advice from the experts in terms of actual qualifications of candidates. You know, has this person demonstrated the ability to handle complex uh, legal cases? Has that person, uh, based on their career, been exposed to different levels of criminal justice? Can they handle the two different uh, legal systems that we are dealing with? So they provide us with the expert advice, but then we make the necessary decisions in terms of who goes on the shortlist, who gets interviewed, whose name gets uh, transmitted to the state. So, so how does it work? Do people kind of put themselves out there or do you search for people? I've seen 
seen yeah, the you've seen the advertisements. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, I know they have to advertise, oh, but it? my question mm-hmm. is... What's reality? Yes. What's re- the reality is, is really it's a bit of both. I mean, prima facie, it's an application on the ICC website that is open to everybody on the planet. If you have internet, you can apply for this job. Whether or not you qualify is a different issue. Uh, so, so the job ads are out there, and there is no restriction in terms of application. Um, but of course, not everybody sees the ICC website. So we have asked through the uh, president of the Assembly of States Parties to ask states to disseminate the ad within their own legal system to relevant institutions, say um, organizations for prosecutors or judicial councils or whatever. So states are asked to also go and disseminate. Um, Whether or not states might tap individuals on the shoulder, we don't know. Um, They can, maybe they will, and that's not a bad thing, but they still have to apply through this portal. But you don't go through your Rolodex and say, oh, I met this... um this prosecutor in Venezuela who looks, uh, who seems very interesting. I'm going to make sure that she saw the ad. Shall we say? Yeah, you can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like you would send a job ad to a friend of yours saying, hey, have you seen that? That has your name on it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the idea is widest possible dissemination around the widest possible geographic distribution. And then what are you looking for? What are you looking for? It's written in the ad. It's um, prima facie, the, the most important uh, criterion is competence, professional qualification, professional competence. We want a real prosecutor who knows how to handle a case, how to manage a case from the investigation standpoint right through the trial phase. Isn't there a Canadian based, ready, could do the job, who's right there, the deputy? Well, I don't know if James is going to apply. If he if he applies, then good for him. But also the interesting thing, and this is right in our terms of reference, if James Stewart, a Canadian citizen, were to apply, I, as the Canadian on the committee, would have to recuse myself from considering his application. Uh-huh. Well, I've, I think I've seen somewhere where he said a year ago that he doesn't want to be the next prosecutor, so maybe your job is safe for the moment well my job is safe in any event it would be only that application that i couldn't deal with ah. you know i can still look at the 198 other ones um but but the idea is that you don't let national prejudice influence your decision but well picking up on that national prejudice i mean there is obviously you know you have to look at the qualifications you have to look at if a person can do this job but there's also the picture it sends or the image it sends and of course with Fatou Bensouda that sends a very kind of good image for the ICC which is being attacked for being uh, imperialist and maybe anti-African you have an African woman uh, running the prosecution not that we're suggesting that she's just there uh, symbolically but no, she no, has no. all the experience as well but it does help in that sense it's it's in a way it's I would say that it's hard to find uh, a replacement that um, not only has the same competences, but also uh, helps the court dispel certain myths about it. Um, if you end up with another kind of, uh, if you end up with another white male, then another middle-aged white male from, yeah. from the Wheelock region. Yes, well, we haven't had a white male from the Wheelock region be the prosecutor yet, so uh, so I would kind of argue with that one. Um, but um, we've had a, we've had a Latin, we've had an African. Um, no white males 
Yeah. Uh, so actually, it's maybe time yeah. for a white male. <laughs> maybe it <laughs> is. Been but no, no, frankly, all, all joking aside, um, we are looking for competence first. Yes. If a person does not have the necessary qualifications, and that includes sensitivity to the political environment, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, a prosecutor must be aware of the must have the 360 view of how the court is how the court is being regarded. Um, but we're not looking at color of skin. We're not not looking at gender. We are looking at all of these things, but only in the broader context. We're not going to be dismissing any, can, any candidacy for optical reasons. Um, and ultimately, the selection of the prosecutor comes uh, falls to the state's parties. We, as the committee, will be putting forward um, a number of candidates. We haven't settled the number yet because we don't know how many really top people we might uh, might emerge from the process um, we will be submitting a short list of names and then it's up to states parties to nominate the people the individuals for election so if nobody gets picked up out of that pool yeah, then, so, if, you know, so they don't need to pick up from the short. I mean, it's expected and they've done it Ideally, maybe in the they past. would, because otherwise, you know, why did we do all the things that we're going to be doing over the next eight months? Um, but uh, but no, under the Rome statute, they're not. it says states shall nominate. And this process is something that the Assembly created this year. To help year states to, to come help up states. with the best possible candidates. Exactly, exactly. So we're, we're the filter, and we're hoping that states will use the filter. But then the political considerations that you mentioned might enter into it when uh, the president of the assembly tries to get consensus around one candidate, for example. So that's when some of these intangibles come into it. But we as the committee, we are not looking for the for the optics, we're not looking for the politics, we're looking for competence and quality and qualifications. So we have these asymmetrical haircuts questions, um, which we asked the same three questions of all of our guests and how are, much is a pint of milk no no that would be good how much is a hamburger no um what do people always get wrong about your job oh uh good lord um i think the first question that they always is the first thing that they tend to assume is that i'm a politician and i'm not i'm a, I'm a civil servant i'm an international lawyer by training and practice i've worked in government for the last 28 years but i'm not a politician i'm apolitical and i think one of the reasons to get that wrong is because uh, the diplomatic appointment processes in the united states are given such prominence and everybody assumes that you know i've been confirmed by parliament or i've been picked for my political political connections i'm not i'm politically neutral and have you I mean, we've just had the summer, so let's let's hope this is a good question. Have you been reading anything recently? Have you seen anything recently that you'd like to recommend to the audience? My reading tends to be very ad hoc. I think I haven't cracked a book, uh, a, a real thick, complete book for probably about eight months. Um, I, I read articles. I read The Economist. I read The New Yorker. I, um, so I, I think my um, my advice would be, broaden your reading. I mean, I I read uh, The Atlantic, which is a conservative magazine, but I read the liberal magazines as well. So I'm trying to get different perspectives. And quite frankly, the things that are happening on our planet in this day and age, you want to get as many perspectives as possible to try and sift out the truth from all the um, 
BS that's often thrown at you, particularly on social media. So I read magazines and, and paper articles and things like that. But in those articles or, or magazine things, is there anything that you've read recently that made you kind of sit up and go, oh, I hadn't looked at it that way. This is a really... Or a particular writer that you've come across? Mm, I like David Frum, in the, who writes for The Atlantic, and which is really weird because a number of years ago, I would not ever have thought that I would like what he writes. Mm. Uh, for some of the things that he did in, in previous political uh, circumstances. Uh, so that was a bit of an eye-opener that somebody with whom I disagreed almost 100% uh, that I could agree with what he's writing now. So I think the big eye-opener is that, that people can change, people's perspectives is much broader, and that you should never ever dismiss um, somebody's views just because you think they come from a certain place. And our final question is always, what should we have asked you that we didn't? Um, yeah, what should you have asked me? Perhaps a little bit more about the OPCW, because that is an institution that is currently under threat for political reasons. What do you mean? Um, starting going back to um, last summer, but also before that, because the organization has been finding chemical weapons use in Syria, Uh, and those findings have been unpopular in certain quarters, um, particularly uh, our Russian friends, but also other states and, and some civil society actors have been uh, attacking the messenger, questioning the organization's integrity and its legitimacy. They can't argue with the findings, so they're asking, arguing with who's finding it. So as a result, that organization, I think, is, is under direct attack. Physically, you will have read in the newspapers about the attempt to infiltrate its, uh, its cyber operations uh, last year. Um, the, uh, the attempts to undermine its operations through withholding of budget of uh, budgetary contributions. Um, political attacks happen on a daily basis. So uh, so it's a, it's a very important part of the rules-based international order. And I've, I've described it as the front of a new Cold War. Um, in the uh, United Nations, um, the Russian Federation holds a veto in the Security Council. They don't have that veto at the, uh, at the OPCW. And as a result, um, you can see certain tactics at play, disinformation campaigns happening right on the property of the of the OPCW itself, um, trying to undermine the legitimacy and the, um, and the correctness of its findings and its work. And uh, so that's, that's, I think, uh, something that, the, uh, that civil society should keep a really close eye on. So you're calling for more understanding more um, more attention to be paid. I'm calling to this. more attention. I'm calling for more engagement. Uh, it's been regarded for a very long time as a purely technical organization. Um, whereas what it does, it carries on its shoulder a strong political commitment, and that's the eradication of chemical weapons. And that political commitment is now being questioned. In fact, it's being accused of, the organization's being accused of having been politicized from some quarters uh, because it makes these findings against Syria. Um, 
well, it's not been politicized. It's it's fulfilling its mandate that was given to it by the international community. But isn't it that um, any institution that actually ends up with teeth, whether it's the OPCW, whether it's the ICC, if they end up with teeth, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be attacked or pulled down by people who disagree with the way that they operate. You're absolutely correct. And, and we don't like it. Uh, Canada is a very strong proponent of the rules-based international order, and that includes the institutions we've set up, um, the international human rights system, uh, the disarmament machinery and architecture. Um, so we are very strong um, supporters of it. We try to uphold it ourselves, and, and we lend it our political and our, when necessary, financial support uh, in order to make sure that those institutions survive, and the OPCW is one of them. Well, Sabine, thank you very much for spending time telling us a bit more about what it's like behind the scenes. Thank you very much. This uh, Now I know a lot more about how uh, prosecutors will be uh, selected. So I'm looking forward to the ASP and talking to you then and see how things are progressing, maybe. Okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you for the questions. Thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. <laughs>